Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Breakthrough Radio, a global business radio show where smarter strategies deliver breakthrough results by adding an entrepreneurial touch driving today's profits. Now, get ready for three powerful breakthrough segments with Michelle Price. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you're tuning into Breakthrough Radio from. This is Michelle Price here, where I'm coming to you from the beautiful, sunny third coast of Houston, Texas today. And on Breakthrough Radio, we're celebrating nine years of talking about how to master the internal and external strategies for business. Well, it's the fourth Monday of the month, and that's when we get to hear from Finka Djokovic on understanding human behavior in business. She delivers a breakthrough tip that's a short tip at the top of the show where you can go take action on that information right now. Our featured spot today is with Rajiv Pachawaria, the author of Open Source Leadership. Our featured interview is a 35- to 40-minute conversation that's a nice deep dive into the topic of the day, allowing you to gain a much better understanding, level of knowledge, and application for your business. And then we're going to wrap up this fourth Monday with our Breakthrough Bite with Andrea Walsh from Go For No. The Breakthrough Bite is a 10-minute segment that's not as long as our deep dive and not as short as our Breakthrough Tip because we like meeting the learning styles of all of our listeners. I want to thank you for coming to listen to Breakthrough Radio. And if it's your first visit, please make sure you thank the person who told you about us. Here's the scoop. You're going to want to listen without distraction. And that's why you only need to write down one URL today. It's www.thebreakthroughradio.com. You know, every week you have access to a blog post that gives you the frame for the conversation for each episode. And that means that everything that we talk about today, something we may reference to as a resource, we link to it there. So whether it's how to reach Finka, Rajiv, Andrea, or myself, make sure you do visit and connect with each one of us. Do more than follow. Reach out. Truly connect. Ask us a question. Engage us in conversation. And, of course, when it makes business, when it makes sense for your business, we love it when you hire us. So now let's pop over here and talk to Cinco Jacobic about her four-part series on your total value package. I believe this is the third and the fourth of that. Am I right, Cinco? You are absolutely right, Michelle. So today we're talking about bringing your value. So in part one, we talked about know your value. In part two, we talked about owning your value and around the confidence piece to that. And today we're talking about all about bringing your value and how do you convey that in a language your client understands. And so... Um, the first point I want to point out is when we think about bringing your value, it's all about using your value, so that distinct gift or solution that you bring to solve a problem for your ideal client or, or how it helps them achieve a particular goal. People don't care about what you do until they understand how it helps them solve a problem that they're having or how it's going to help them achieve a goal. 
And so when you think about your brand or if you think about your value proposition, if you want either of those to stand out or to connect with your ideal client or the person that you're looking to work with, we always have to remember it's not about you and who you are and what you do. It's all about them. And so when you think about, you know, how do you connect? How do you bring your value? How do you convey it in a language that they understand? It really has to speak to them. It has to talk to who they are. Who's that specific person? It has to also name and identify what they're struggling with and what do they really, really want. And once you make that connection, guess what? You have the permission to talk about who you are, what you do, and how you help them solve those problems and achieve their goals. And so that is is how we get to that, that final step. Now, um, last week I actually ran into someone. It was in a um, they're a commercial loans advisor, account manager. So they they help business owners um, uh, with you know operating lines and cash flow services. And so I'm going to just illustrate this in a really really quick example of how this looks. And so we talked about his value statement. He said he was a straight shooter that brings practical solutions to his clients. So when you think about that, that's, that's great. That's what he does. He brings, he's, you know, he's direct in his communication, and he brings practical solutions. But if I'm a business owner and I'm looking at him, I'm like, yeah, that's nice. So what? And so the so what really means how do you connect with your clients. So he really needs to get clear on what are some of the challenges his ideal clients are having, these business owners. And for him particularly, when he's conveying his value, he has to actually convey it in a way where he's touching on the pain points that that prospective client is feeling. And in this particular case, a business owner might be experiencing cash flow issues. They've got to pay their bills within 30 days, but their accounts receivables, their incoming cash is not coming in until 60 days later. So they've got to carry 30 days of, of cash, you know, in their business. And so for him, you know, he really needs to get clear on their pain point and this pain point of cash that they don't have for that 30-day period. And so we started crafting his elevator pitch or his value proposition, and it turned out like this. And so this is an example of how this works. So he helps business owners, so that's his ideal client, who struggle with cash flow because of the delay of incoming accounts receivable and the outgoing of payables. So that's their pain point. So now you got their attention. you got this business owner attention. And now he's got the permission to say, well, with my straight shooter style, I help deliver practical solutions. And here's why, why they want this. This is the gain point, so that they can take advantage of business opportunities without the worry or stress of knowing that they don't have the cash to do it. And so, again, when we, you know, what, you know, your takeaways are on this is you need to know how you help your clients, your people. You need to be very clear on what you do and how you help them. But you also need to understand what your client's pain and gain points are. And you need to have the ability to communicate all of that with your client in mind and speaking their language. So that uh, concludes the series on uh, your total value package. Know your value, own your value. And finally, the two most important at the end of this is bringing your value and conveying it in a language that your clients understand. Finka, you have done it again. I love that example, and I can't wait to see what we're going to learn from you starting 2018. Wonderful. Thank you, Michelle. Well, you know, in our last episode, we talked with Kelsey Rugger about personas and storytelling. Now, a big company that's been great at innovative storytelling is Ford. How will you follow Ford's lead and be more strategic in how you connect and serve your customers? 
You know, today's consumer has changed buying for businesses, no matter what industry you sit. It's why having a buyer journey map has become mandatory if you want to succeed and grow. And that is exactly what Growth Hacking CMO does with their clients when they're approached and ask for help to grow businesses and revenue. Growth Hacking CMOs are masters at crafting that roadmap and then showing their clients how to structure their execution with precision so they're hitting their business objectives. So defining what's important to your customers today and using analytics to see how customers are making their buying decision is the savvy way to prepare for their future needs and to make sure your company stays relevant. So when you know what's valuable to your customer, you can use that to capture their attention and have it be welcomed. Whether you have 10 or 10,000 customers, your buyer journey map saves you time, money, and headaches, and it's your sweet spot in business that can help you generate profits and gain traction over your competitors. So connect with growhackingcmo.com and find out how you can do that even this last quarter here in 2017. Now, before we start our featured interview, remember we appreciate it when you share today's show by going to www.thebreakthroughradio.com. Let me share a little bit about our next guest. Rajiv Peshawaria is the author of Too Many Bosses, Too Few Leaders in 2011, and then Be the Change in 2014, and now what we're going to talk about today, Open Source Leadership. And he's also a regular writer for Forbes. Rajiv is a CEO of iCliff Leadership and Governance Center. He has an extensive global experience in leadership development with a particular focus on uncovering personal and organizational leadership energy and developing delivering business strategy. Rajiv's professional roots are in industry. He's been the chief learning officer for both Coca-Cola and Morgan Stanley and has formally held senior positions at American Express and Goldman Sachs. Goldman Rajiv helped found Pine Street, the firm's acclaimed leadership academy, and headed Pine Street for Europe and Asia. So please join me as we welcome Rajiv to the radio today. Well, I know one of the things that's been really fascinating in reading your book, Rajiv, the open source leadership, is that one of the things that's been kind of interesting on Breakthrough Radio is we tend to talk about things before most other people do on the show. You know, Jeff is really good uh, about the first Monday. He's talking about the intersection between people and technology, and he started covering things like autonomous vehicles and and what's going to happen if robots and AI take your job before anyone else ever had those conversations, as well as Yared, you know, in the third week talks about the future of the workforce, which tends to kind of cover some of those forward-thinking conversations as well. And I, I was really uh, intrigued with the depth of the research that you did on this book uh, and, and how it caused you to ask some pretty interesting questions. Would you share with listeners today what that research looked like so that they'll have a good framework of, of where we're going to go today and what kind of facts things were based on. Sure. Uh, happy to. So, you know, what I looked at was uh, how is the world changing thanks to technology? 
I, uh, when I'm doing, uh, you know, live sessions, I typically start by asking people, raise your hand if you believe technology has changed our life, both at home and at work, tremendously just in the last five years. And uh, everybody raises their hand. Then I say, raise your hand if you believe that, your, that large organizations uh, are keeping pace with that change when it comes to uh, how they manage and lead people, and nobody raises their hand. Tremendous, I mean, er, everywhere in the world I've spoken, that, that's what I get. And then I tell them that this is what this book is all about. So in a nutshell, you know, uh, what, what the, the key trends that I see, everybody knows all the changes that technology is making, so I'm not going to talk about that. But what does that mean to people? Uh, two things that stand out are three things. One is we are living in an era of if you don't innovate fast enough, you die. Second, ordinary people are more empowered than ever before because everybody has a supercomputer in their pocket these days. And it's connected to the whole world. And third is leaders are completely exposed. Exposed to the extent of being naked. Just think about the last uh, presidential election season and you know what I mean by naked. So those are three main things, and they're driving such profound change that uh, you know, organizations and individuals need to really understand what those are and how uh, do they impact them. Well, you know, one of the questions that tends to pop into my mind when we talk about topics like this, uh, and, and we hear both you know, listeners here in North America as well as our 27% of global listeners all say the same thing when it comes to, you know, I'm almost overwhelmed things are happening so quickly and change is on me before I've completed the change that I was working on previously. So we hear a level of sometimes delight, sometimes frustration, and sometimes overwhelm from them. I'm just wondering, when you're in an environment like this, and you as a person are just having a hard time shifting gears, is our expectation for leadership to be able to keep up, if we can't keep up, unreasonable? Yeah, so, you know, there are two types of people. Uh, those who are keeping up and those who are not, clearly, isn't it? And uh, that's, that's true of leaders and everybody else. My observation is that, you know, if you, let, if you sit back and say, oh, my God, lots of change is happening, and a lot of uh, people talk about, you know, how can I adapt to this change quickly enough? That's not leadership. Uh, the other kind of person is uh, who, somebody who anticipates the future and says, okay, what better future do I want to create? What kind of environment am I in? What is this environment going to look like a few years from now? And what better future do I want to create? They get so clear about their own values and their own purpose, uh, which is the picture of the better future they want to create, that they aren't in, 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 the, in the front of it. Uh, so I think in the old days we used to talk about, you know, adaptability to change. Now you have to literally be on the forefront of change. So, you know, are you proactively thinking about coming to work and saying, oh, my God, uh, everything I knew yesterday has changed. Now what do I do? Or do you have a clear picture of the better future you want to create? Uh, and do you have enough energy to keep going? Uh, I think you've got to be that. Mm. Well, I know that the research that you did for open source leadership, you talked to over 16,000 people across 28 countries, and there were some things that really surfaced 
in this research, and there's particularly one thing that really surfaced in this research that's probably going to catch everybody off guard that either listens to us in our conversation today or that pick up the book and read it, and they're just going to kind of shake their head and go, really? That doesn't seem to align to what people say they want. Share with everybody what that insight was that surfaced. Okay, so first let's, let, let, let's take a step back. You know, what is happening around us? Uh, the 21st century is, an, is, 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 is when all the speed is just so, so amazing. Things are happening so fast. Uh, everybody's talking about all the exciting opportunities that these, these technological changes are going to bring about. Everybody talks about the Asian century and the whole Asian market opening up because the world is a global village and therefore that many more people, you know, we're going to 10, 10 billion people in, by 2060, so that many more consumers, that many more customers. But we also must recognize that this, the 21st century, we are facing tremendous challenges. If we go to 10 billion people, uh, where's all the food going to come from? Where's drinking water going to come from? Where's healthcare going to come from? Where's socioeconomic, uh, you know, differences, where are they going to go? So basically, we are saying exciting opportunities and daunting challenges, both of which are unfolding at, at breakneck speed, Right. So here, first of all, we need to redefine what leadership is. Uh, we cannot define leadership in terms of position or title or authority anymore. I am a CEO, therefore I am a leader, right? Uh, the other problem is that we've always thought about leadership, but we've actually rewarded followership in the name of leadership. As, ki- as parents, we love our children when, they, are, when they, they listen to us and obey, and we sort of uh, you know, discipline them or whack them when they don't. In school, uh, Teachers, pets in class are the ones who obey and listen to and follow instructions precisely. And even in the boardroom, when a CEO presents a new strategy, the first question the board asks is, where's the best practice report from McKinsey that 10 companies have done it? Right from childhood all the way to the boardroom, we have confused followership with leadership. In today's day of daunting challenges and exciting opportunities, we have to redefine leadership, like I said, as a burning desire to create a better future. Now, do so, you're going to face resistance, and you need to fortify yourself with a tremendous amount of energy, inner strength, and that can only come if you are super clear about your values and your purpose in life. So that's the first thing, that you know, the whole definition of leadership needs to change. Coming back to your question about the research and the most startling finding is, yes, 16,500 people in all 28 countries told us that in today's day when everybody is connected and everything is connected, where ordinary people have tremendous amount of power, you need to be significantly autocratic if you want to create that better future. Uh, Democratic, all-inclusive style of leadership will not work in this age of speed where anybody can join any debate. And yeah, that was the most... uh, surprising element of the research, we thought there'll be differences by country, but every single of the 28 countries, overwhelmingly people said, yes, we need a democratic style of, uh, we need an autocratic style of leadership, not a democratic style of leadership. That was one of the few big findings uh, in the study. I can go deeper if you like, so let me stop here for a minute. Well, one of the things that I notice, and I wonder how many times people have really given a lot of deep consideration to that is everything that you shared as far as from parenthood, childhood, 
studenthood into adulthood, we rewarded people for the wrong things if we wanted to have everyone understand what leadership truly is. And we Mm -hmm. see that even inside of companies. We tend to reward people for being good followers, as you say, instead of helping them to understand what it means to think like a leader and to help people develop those critical thinking skills to use even internally on themselves so that they have more self-awareness and a better understanding about who they are and what they can do in the world. If you're doing that through someone's entire life until they get to the point where they're going to be working in the work world, that's kind of like asking people to put their gears into reverse when it comes to uh, <laughs> comes to understanding how we want people to work together. So why do you think it is that we tend to reward for uh, our own personal comfort instead of the way the world needs to be working? You know, that's the, uh, that's the interesting part, right? Why have we been rewarding followership in the name of leadership all along, as I just explained? Um, it, it's, it's baffling because, you know, on the one hand, we spend a staggering 60 to $80 billion a year on leadership development around the world. On the other hand, we reward people for followership behaviors and call it leadership. I'll give you another bizarre example, something that hundreds of millions of dollars are spent on every year, okay? It's the employee engagement survey. So companies typically put up a a whole lot of questions or statements and ask their employees to rate them. They average out the data. Basically, these questions ask, are you happy with your boss? Are you happy with the food? Are you happy with the rations? Um, Pretty much. And then the uh, data is averaged on every item, and you have the top 10 items and the bottom 10 items. And management gets together with HR and says, okay, let's talk about what we can do to prop up these numbers uh, next year so overall employee engagement goes up. Right? Well, Two two problems here. Uh, One is the 80-20 rule. 20% of the people produce 80% of the results. The Pareto principle hasn't been debunked since 1906. If you average this data, uh, the voice of the top 20% that really matter gets drowned under the remaining 80%. And to address those, uh, those survey results, companies end up promoting mediocrity instead of uh, excellence because the top 20 who are really excellent, their voice is drowned. Secondly, in kind of the companies I worked for, they said, if you manage more than 20 people, your cut of the employee survey results is going to determine a big chunk of your bonus. So for me personally, uh, I am told I should be a good leader and therefore I should get a good employee survey result and so I'll get a good bonus. I quickly learned that I need to become a pleaser. I quickly learned that I must postpone difficult decisions which are good for the company but bad for the employees and I start pleasing employees. Pleasing is an act of followership. So the whole definition and notions about leadership need to change if we are going to address the challenges and opportunities of the 21st century. Well, Rajiv, what do you what do you notice whenever you're actually going inside of companies and you're helping them to identify where their own challenges are, how do you get them to be able to change their thinking, their mindset, which is really what controls 
most people's behaviors uh, because that's not something that's, that's easily done and it's not something that most people um, are, are willing to risk. Uh, so to be able to get that yes, that okay, that okay, we see this is going to benefit us, let's do it, how, how do you get them to even come around to that kind of thinking when you're staring at these facts and uh, the data from the research that you've come up with in open source leadership? Well, you know, uh, we, we go in, if a company, first of all, you know, if a company or the organization wants to transform itself, uh, there should be willingness at the top from the CEO and from the top management team that we want to do something. You can bring a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. So, uh, you know, first, if they are willing, then we show them uh, their data. What we do is we, we, we've created a little instrument which takes seven minutes for people to fill out. It's called Brains, Bones, and Nerves, okay? Five statements that talk about the vision, mission, and strategy of the organization. Is it clear to me? Are my leaders of the company really driving innovative uh, strategies? Do I fully understand them? Am I fully bought in, etc.? Five statements on bones, which is to do with things like, do we have the right people in the right job? Do we have the right organization structure? Uh, do, I have the right process? do we have the right processes that enable nimble action and innovation rather than create a bureaucracy? And then five on nerves, which is culture. Do we understand what our corporate values are? And does everybody live those values, or are they just posters on the wall, right? So brains, bones, and nerves, 15 items. Take seven minutes for people. So you send it out to all your employees and ask them to rate them on a scale of one to five, strongly agree to strongly disagree. And you hold that mirror to the senior management. That this is how your people perceive your leadership. You know, and we, we, we tabulate the results and put them all on one page so they can look at it, uh, you know, by item. And that usually is an eye-opener. Oh, my God, we thought that we were great strategic leaders, but our people don't seem to understand our strategy. Or our culture is not what it should be. And uh, so that's, to answer your question, how do you get them to realize, that's typically how we do it. Yeah, because it's fascinating how people say they want to transform, but then when you put them, start putting them through that whole process, you are immediately met with resistance, which is a natural thing. Humans, they get protective over themselves. They don't want to look bad, um, even if they say they they're willing to do the work. And so it does get kind of fascinating when you step into that space. You know, some of the leadership behaviors that you talk about in open source leadership, um, people admire some of those leaders, and then people talk a little despairingly about some of those leaders. And probably the easiest one to really pick on, if we're going to label anything, would be, Steve Jobs, you know, everybody wants to be as visionary thinking and as creative and as transformative in what he produced, but no one really wants to be known as the asshole. Do you have to be, do you have to be that type of personality in order to be an effective leader if what people respond to is more of an autocratic leadership style? That's a great question. So, you know, uh, times have changed even since Steve Jobs. Uh, you know, he was incredibly abrasive and not uh, uh, an easy person at all. And uh, the good news is the times have changed even then. So here's the deal. 
Uh, you know, 28 countries, everybody overwhelmingly agrees that in today's age of speed, you need an autocratic style of leadership, right? Uh, on the other hand, ordinary people are so empowered today with the, with, with the devices that we all have that we can destroy anybody's uh, reputation at, at, at any time and to the extent that leaders are totally exposed and naked. That idea that leaders are exposed and naked while ordinary people are empowered actually is a built-in uh, self-checking mechanism. Because even if somebody wants to be autocratic, and the data says you need to be autocratic in order to create breakthrough results, you know, uh, how can you even be autocratic? Because people won't let you. They have the power. So the 2011 Arab Spring should be a great reminder that force is not even an option anymore. So if Steve Jobs was still alive, could he afford to be this abrasive, as abrasive as he used to be uh, in, in, in 2017? And the answer is no, because people are much more connected, much more empowered today than even 10 years ago, right? So that is the beauty of the open source era, that there is a self-auditing mechanism. So the question is, data says you've got to be autocratic, how can you be? And the answer is, you have to practice positive autocracy. Some people call it benevolent autocracy. In the book, I call it positive autocracy. And there are five keys to being a positive autocrat, which I describe in the book, uh, because you cannot be, you know, a complete, as you say, asshole, uh, because those days are over, because people will, 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 will sooner or later bring you down if you are. Well, you know, one of the things that really surfaced for me personally as I was reading uh, the content inside of Open Source Leadership was how I was very appreciative of the founder of Startup Grind that I work with, you know, they're the largest uh, startup entrepreneurial organization in the world. And people will ask us as chapter directors a lot, what interested you in either being involved or what kept you involved for the period of time you've been involved? And my answer to them is I am forever uh, in not just gratitude, but constantly learning from our founder because I've not seen a combination of leader like him. He is uh, very humble and fun and easy to talk to, yet he does have a very strong autocratic leadership style when it comes to what's important. He, so he'll give us as chapter directors, for example, a lot of leeway to determine and decide what's good for the community that we're either serving or that we're building for the first time with our chapters in each of our cities or countries, wherever we're at. But there's a very clear set of values that we all operate from, and that is give first before you, you know, take for yourself, help others and to make friends. And while that sounds really simple and simplistic, it's been a wonderful tool for me as a local leader to help build my team with as well as let people know who we are and how we can help them um, because we find it easy to live with those values and to have them uh, lead us in what we choose or make our decisions on of how we move forward. And so having 
had the opportunity for the almost the past four years to work with a leader like that, I see how powerful it is. And I just wonder, is, is getting more companies to understand the value of, of having a value-driven uh, leadership and culture inside of companies, how long is it going to take for people to truly catch on to that really embrace it, and then implement it. Yeah, you know, you're describing, uh, uh, you know, some of the keys to positive autocracy that I talk about in the book. That one thing I describe is uh, you've got to master the art, uh, the dance of the naked autocrat. Uh, naked because leaders are exposed, and autocrat because that's what's needed. And the dance of the naked autocrat is to balance seemingly two opposites uh, at the same time. So, we are very, you have to be very, very uh, autocratic about your values and your purpose. This is what we are out to do, and this is how, through these values, is how we will do it. And there's no question, because we've taught these things very slowly, very deliberately, very carefully. At the same time, we will be very, very humble and respectful with people. So that's the dance of the naked autocrat, right? Which is what you're kind of describing. And you have to literally earn the right to be autocratic every day by living the right values and pursuing the right purpose every day uh, because that's how exposed we are these days. Uh, coming to how long will it take? Well, you know, again, like everything else in life, I think the 80-20 rule will apply that 20% of the people will get it and 80% won't. That's just how, uh, how the world works, 80-20, the Pareto principle. And uh, if 20% of us get it, that the way to go is to build a better future and have do it through values, and a values-based purpose, I think the world will be safe. Uh, so uh, the reason I wrote this book is because we want more people to understand that, you know, competency models and, uh, and role plays and copycat best practices, those days are over. Now you've got to invent the future if you want to call yourself a leader. Well, when you, when you approach it from that direction, Rajiv, where you have to invent the future, uh, where you don't want to be... Uh, looking at best practices or case studies, then how do people truly learn if they aren't reviewing what someone's done and even learning from their mistakes, much less what they've done well? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's one of the things mm -hmm. that we've had, um, because that's why, for example, we have Fireside Chats that, at, at Startup Garden each month. We've had uh, our community say, you know, even if I wasn't interested in the person or the topic, like, you know, not everybody needs to learn crowdfunding, but, you know, people will come because what they've said to us afterwards is I've learned something I needed to know every month, even if I didn't think I needed to learn about that topic or from that person because of the type of questions that surface from either the people who are trying to do it or the questions that surface for me uh, of just learning why I don't want to do it. So how are you supposed to learn if you never look at best practices or how someone's done well or how someone's done poorly? Oh, I, I, let me clarify. You absolutely need to learn from history. You absolutely learn from other people's best practices. What I meant was that just replicating best practice is not good enough. You know, in the old days, if I was living in Asia 
and I went to America and I found something, something somebody was doing over there which was unique and nobody in Asia was doing it, if I was the first person to bring it back and implement it in Asia, they called me a leader because I, had, I was the first one to bring that so-called best practice back to Asia. Right? These days, the moment something new is created, the moment it leaves your keyboard, it's out there and it just spreads like wildfire. So absolutely, we have to learn from history. We have to learn from other people. We have to learn from our own mistakes. So then, but then put all that aside and say, okay, what are the unmet and unarticulated needs of my constituents? And how should I move forward based on fulfilling those? Because that's what it's all about today. Mm. You know, one of the things that I have watched especially in the startup space, is how a lot of times founders in that early team will say, we're going to let our culture form itself organically because culture is hmm. not something you can create or force. And I'm hmm. sitting there going, yeah, that's not quite how it works, but I don't always know how to articulate that to them. What would be your response to hearing someone say that to you? Well, you know, a culture will form whether you do something about it or you don't. And therefore, what I'm saying is in the naked era, you better be proactive about creating the culture. And if you just demystify or simplify what culture means, then you can create the culture you want with a lot of, with, with quite easily, actually. The problem is consultants come in and they complicate what culture is. Let's get, first of all, straight what culture is. And I'll give you two sort of similar definitions to what I, how I define culture. One is, culture is what your people do when no one is looking. Yeah? That's as simple as that. Culture is what your people do when no one is looking. The other one is, most companies have corporate values, which are, in the, in, uh, which are on posters and hallways, etc., right? So the second definition I like to give is, culture is your company's or your organization's values in action or in action. So are they inaction, meaning are people living them? Or inaction means not inaction. Uh, that's the other definition. Point being, if you want to succeed today, you have to have a culture that is based on the values that you think is going to drive success for your organization. So not only must you define those values in clear, simple terms so they inform people what to do. Don't create an acronym of single words because that, so that it's easy to remember, right? Plain English sentences, uh, instead of saying just teamwork, say something like, uh, don't permit your colleagues to fail. So like that, you list the core values or core behaviors that you want everybody to exhibit in the company. Second, walk the talk, role model those behaviors. And the most important final step is link those behaviors to rewards and compensation. Once you do those three things, you've got the culture you want. How is that any difficult? Uh, you know, unnecessarily, you know, bringing in all kinds of consultants to do analysis paralysis and to understand what culture is, and it takes many, many years. No, it doesn't. It's three simple steps. What are those behaviors that I want every employee to live by? How am I, as a leader, as a lead, my leadership team, how are we going to communicate those, and how are we going to role model them every day? And three, how are we going to reward people if they live those behaviors and punish people when they don't? Have the discipline of doing that. You've got the culture you want very, very quickly. If you don't do that and let the culture evolve yourself, then Uber will happen. United Airlines will happen. Just think one, one last thing. Uh, imagine if, you know, when, when, when they dra dra dragged Dr. Dow out of that United Airlines flight, 
the first uh, statements that came out of the company was, our employees did nothing wrong. They were following stated company procedure. Now imagine if instead of following stated company procedure, they had followed uh, stated company values. Would they still have dragged out Dr. Dow in that blood bloodied state? And so that's where culture comes in. It tells people what to do uh, in difficult situations. And you have to create it proactively. Well, the thing that really stood out for me and that that I see a lot of companies make their biggest mistake in, Rajiv, is that they don't reward people for the behaviors that actually support the culture they want to create. So how can, if, if you know, listeners are, are really absorbing all of this great knowledge you're sharing today and they're looking at doing things a little uh, more proactively inside their companies, how difficult is it really for them to change what they reward people for? Because that's where I hear, you know, so many times people go, when I I ask them questions, and I'm like, well, why are you doing that? Because if we don't do that, we get in trouble. And so, I, you know, I keep going until I, I get down to the real issue. And what I've discovered is it's because they're being rewarded for the wrong thing, kind of like you said at, at the top of the show, where people were rewarded for pleasing their employees instead of leading them. Yeah, it's a problem. You know, we, we seem to be you, – you get what you measure. And, uh, you know, now measuring behavior is not a perfect science. And uh, anything to do with uh, measuring performance is, is, is everybody has an opinion on it, right? So you're never going to please everybody on this. But there is one way which is less, less imperfect than all the other ways that I recommend, which is, you know, be clear about the four or five or six behaviors that you want everybody to display uh, in your company, in your organization, then at the end of each year, do a 360-degree feedback system where every employee makes a list of, say, the 10 or 15 people that he or she worked very closely with during the year, and then uh, uh, these 10 or 15 people, the list is uh, approved by the manager, so they don't just put friends and family over there, uh, and then uh, they give feedback on whether this person really lived the values or not, and everybody gets that and link that to a reward system, or at least take that into account when you, when you decide bonuses and payment, uh, pays and promotions and things like that. Uh, that is a much better way of doing it than doing an employee engagement survey and paying people for pleasing. Again, it's not perfect, but there is no human measurement system that is perfect. <laughs> That's a great reminder. And, you know, you made me think of something um, I was about to ask you the last question, then I thought of something else that I don't want to leave out of our conversation today. And, and, and that is, um, we hear so many times the, the um, almost tug of war that happens inside of companies between boomers and millennials. And frankly, I'm finding it funny because I think that too many times it's people's belief systems that are getting in the way instead of just, you know, being uh, a little more clear about what's really bothering them. What are the things that, what have you learned that leaders are doing wrong when it comes to uh, trying to work with the millennials in their own workforce inside their companies? Because it's, 
It's something, I don't care what size company you talk to, it's one of the most talked about things on the streets when you're, you know, whether you're at a networking function, whether you're at a, a, a wonderful benefit function. I always hear this surface in people's conversations, and I just shake my head going, you've totally missed it. But I think it would be really beneficial for listeners to hear your take on this. Yeah, you know, I, I cringe on this as well, just like you. When, when people say, oh, these millennials, you know, they don't have the kind of values that we used to have, hard work and integrity, and, you know, we, we, we came up the hard way and we were willing to pay our dues, these guys all want it now and they wanted the easy way out for everything. They don't want to, you know, put in the hours and this, that, and the other. When they say such things that millennials don't have the right values and they want the easy way out, I find it really strange because I ask those people who say such things, okay, so when you're traveling interstate, uh, do you use Google Maps or Waze or one of those uh, things on your phone uh, that navigates your way? Yeah, we do. Then why don't you keep an atlas, a physical atlas in your car instead? Because it's easier to use Waze or Google Maps? Oh, so you're trying to do the same thing that millennials do. Okay. So now when you're keeping your books of account for your organization, uh, why do you use spreadsheets or Intuit or any, any other uh, you know, automated software? Why don't you keep your books manually? Oh, might it be because it's easier and because you can do it? Well, then what's the difference? Point being, there is unnecessary criticism between one generation and other. It's always been the case. You know, when, when I was young as a teenager, probably my parents said the same thing about me, but I can bet you that when they were teenagers, my grandparents said the same thing about them. Uh, it's just a, a generational thing. But actually, I find that people are people, and everybody's motivated by a set of personal values and a sense of purpose, and you just have to get to the bottom of that. There are no major differences across generations. I have had zero problem, and I've observed the best of leaders. They never complain about millennials. They are willing to learn from them, if anything. And it is, uh, uh, this whole talk about you know, millennials and the differences between them is, is completely overblown, in my opinion. I think so, too. It, I find I learn from them, and then when I share with them, there's, there's a level of respect that happens that, uh, just frankly, too many people are, are busy operating from what I've identified as an ego-driven space, and they don't recognize it. Exactly right. Exactly right. So I'm older, so I'm right. And you are you're a young millennial, you just don't get it. <laughs> I mean, think like that at your own peril. <laughs> True. Well, you know, there is a question that we ask all the guests who come on Breakthrough Radio that has nothing to do with your area of expertise. Uh, we came up with it about mm, eight years ago, and I have only forgotten to ask it twice, and both times Lou in New York gave me a very hard time on Twitter, so I've never forgotten again. And, and it's really kind of funny how the question even came about, Rajiv. It was one of those situations where, you know, there was a Saturday afternoon I was watching Star Trek. I love Star Trek. And Spock was doing his mind melt thing, you know, where he puts his hands on people's heads and he can, like, morph into from the beginning all the way to the end of their lives. And 
I was really into this episode, and I, so I know you've probably never done this, but I yelled at the TV, and I said, I don't really care what happened in his entire life, but if you could explain to me why he made that choice and that decision, and as soon as it came out my mouth, I was like, wow, wait a minute, that's actually a pretty good thing. What we could understand how someone, say someone we've admired for a long time, how they made their choices and their decisions, and so instead of needing an entire mind meld, we could just have a slice of one, you know, just a little mini brain download. And so when you think about that, what could I learn from someone that I admire about their choices and their decisions? And, and you could pick someone, you know, whether it's someone from the past or someone from the present and maybe even someone from the future. Who would Rachi want to have that mini brain download from? And why? Hmm, that's a great question. Uh, so many people come to mind, uh, you know. Um, and uh, for example, um, you know, I would uh, I would want to get into the head of Nelson Mandela as uh, to so when he came out of prison. How uh, did he make the choice of choosing between his family, uh, his wife and his daughter? and choosing between the larger family, which was the whole population of South Africa. What I mean is, he was caught between a rock and a hard place. He knew that if, in, to create a rainbow nation, he needed to forgive, and he needed reconciliation and forgiveness to begin right the day he came out of prison. He said, when I was walking through the doors of prison, I, I knew that if I didn't leave my anger behind that door, I would still be a prisoner. And then he said to people, even though the entire country was, 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 was screaming for, for revenge, an eye for an eye, he said, no, we need to forgive, we need reconciliation, we need to build a rainbow nation. His own wife and daughter left him because they thought he had done a deal with the devil. So how does one make a choice that I will sacrifice my relationship with my family for the sake of the larger family because that's what's right for the country? Boy, would I like to... To, to understand the neural activity in his brain at that time. <laughs> Boy, I'm with you on that one. Talk about talk about taking a risk and and being willing to sacrifice. That's that's a huge one. Well, Rajiv, I want to thank you for coming on Breakthrough Radio today, allowing us to have a nice deep dive conversation with you around open source leadership, because I know what has happened is. Our listeners have shared with us they appreciate the fact that they're not just going to hear a few sound bites when they tune in. They know they're going to hear things that they can learn from, they can put into action right then and there, and it, it compels them to want to go read the rest of the body of the work, which is really good for you as an author. So thank you for coming on and sharing that with us today. Thank you for having me. Well, now for our breakthrough bite with Andrea Walsh, our Go For No expert. You know, Andrea, I am going to mute myself and come back when we have about maybe 30 seconds so I can close out the show. I'm going to listen and take notes on your last uh, segment here for the series this year. 
Perfect. Thank you so much, Michelle. It is great to be with you. I can't believe that we're wrapping up 2017 here pretty soon. Um, and this segment is about, is or is a wrap-up as well, um, about connections. And I started back in September about uh, creating a connectivity mindset. And everything, in my opinion, believes with your mindset, right? What you think about um, and how you are thinking about things in your business. Making connections is no exception. You might have heard the saying, it's not who you know, it's who knows you. And that is really important. Um, but you've got to get out there and make that happen. So it all begins with making connections with people. And that all starts with getting out of that lone wolf mindset and shifting over and meeting people in your space. Not just prospects or potential uh, you know, clients, but colleagues, people who do what you do, who get you, and the leaders in your industry, the people that you follow so that you can learn from them and they can learn from you. So in essence, I talked a little bit about that back in September when we started the Connection Series, and it was about what I called finding your marigolds, and that is all about surrounding yourself with the right people, people who build you up, who make you better, um, and who don't, uh, you know, who, who don't say what you're doing is impossible. They actually make everything feel possible. So that is super important. But really, um, as, as you kind of um, embrace the connectivity mindset, and if you have been operating as a lone wolf, and I spent a lot of time on the last episode talking about the, um, and if you haven't heard the series, please go back and listen. I, I spent a lot of time on the last um, show talking about how important it is to get out of that lone wolf syndrome, that, that mindset. Um, and so uh, now it is about developing a connection game plan. You don't want to leave your connection strategy to strategy, excuse me, to chance. Because what will happen is you'll be like, yeah, making connections, it's true, I need to get out there, no more lone wolf, and then you don't make anything happen because you don't have a plan. So you have to decide what it looks like. And in his book, The School of Greatness, or actually I think it's just called School of Greatness, Lewis Howes suggested um, a really great recipe. I thought it was one of the best that I had seen about making connections. And I have actually used this um, type of thing for social media. I think when it comes to everything in your business where it requires time and it, it can feel overwhelming, when you think about your strategy and you kind of step back and say, okay, what do what do I want to do? What do I need to accomplish? And then what does that look like execution-wise? Um, then you can come up with this recipe. And so here is what Lewis Howes suggested in his book. He said um, you should connect with three people a week in your industry, in person, by phone, or online. Connect with three influencers a week. Share a meal with three people each week and go to one group event each month. So it's, it's, the, the recipe is so great because it's so e easy to measure, um, and it's so easy to decide if you're being successful based on what your strategy is or if you're falling down on it. Now, that kind of sounded like a lot maybe to some of you. I mean, connecting with three people a week in your industry 
um, somehow in-person phone online, also connecting with three influencers, right? These are people that, again, you want them to know you, right, because they're influencers. You want to share a meal with three people each week. So maybe you can kind of do double duty on that um, and then go to one group event each month. I think that is super, super important. So it is a, it is a lot. So if you, if you feel like you don't have time for all of that, just figure out what your strategy is, what your plan is. Because if you have the plan, it's easy to measure, and it just becomes a behavior that you knock out. And I do the same thing as I was kind of alluding to with social media. So I say, hey, I want to do this many posts. I want to and make sure that I've, I'm interacting and I'm retweeting at, at least you know, three to five times a day content that I think is valuable. So I can go back and I can measure and really see, am I doing those things? Those things add to my business. And so this recipe, I thought, in um, School of Greatness was really easy to follow and great. So my tip, my breakthrough tip around this is um, to, to develop this connection game plan and then to do what I think is some really interesting advice given by author Kevin Cruz. He teaches people this whole idea of instead of doing to-do lists, um, which I personally love, but he teaches people to schedule. Basically, it's all time scheduling using your calendar, no matter what it happens to be, instead of using lists and things like that. It's really scheduling on your calendar. What's interesting is you can do a little bit of both, but once you figure out what your connection game plan is, then you log it into your calendar. So if there's an event that you go to every month, maybe it's the same networking event, write it on your calendar so that afternoon or that lunch hour is blocked off and now it's scheduled and now your connection game plan is going to get done. Maybe you decide that Friday Friday lunches are going to be the time where you try to have a meal every Friday with someone to fill that, to, to get those meals in with um, influencers or prospects or whatever, making those connections. So there's that. Write that in on your calendar. You see where I'm going with this. It's come up with your game plan and then fill it into your calendar. That way, when it comes to the to-do lists and all of the other things that you've got planned, your connection game plan is already logged, it's already scheduled, and you have a lot less uh, opportunity to have those things fall through because you, you actually have it scheduled. You scheduled it to um, the calendar rather than just writing down a to-do list, which is, well, I, gosh, I guess I should call this person and see if they'd like to have lunch. Get it in on your calendar. Then, um, you know, obviously back back. Um, date that and make sure that you get something on your to-do list, which is reaching out and connecting with people on the phone, getting in touch with those people to schedule those lunches and those dinners. It, it really is about kind of getting ahead of the curve. And then finally, this over, whole overall co connectivity mindset, if you will, really comes down to um, – Digging your well before you thir you're thirsty. There's a saying, dig your well before you're thirsty. Um, and, and, and so don't focus on not reaching out because you might be thinking like, Andrea, this makes sense. I get it. Connections are important, but I don't need anything. Like there's nothing, you know, I don't need anything from anybody and I don't need to talk to people in my industry. When you don't do it, you don't realize what you're missing out on. And when I, I said it's not about who you know, it's about who knows you, those things are really true. So um, have a go-giver mindset. 
reach out and focus on what you can offer to other people. It's not necessarily you, you maybe you don't need anything right now, but um, you will. And so if you can be a value, if you can gather information from your connections, ask how you can be of service to them, then when it comes time to when you do need something, which that happens, um, you will, and it'll be great to have all of those people on your side. So again, hang out, surround yourself with people who lift you up, what, what is called the um, find your marigolds strategy. Um, come up with, get away from the lone wolf mindset and come up with your game plan. This is the perfect time to come up with it. 2018, right around the corner, figure out what it looks like, get it scheduled on the calendar, and then you can execute it. So that is it for my connection series. I'm super excited for our last show of the year um, in December. And I, as always, the last show of the year is super fun. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it too, Andrea. So I'm going to ask everyone, how will you communicate your value better and gain you more clients? You learned that from Fink at the top of the show. What will you do differently this week that you heard from Rajiv in your own leadership? And where are there opportunities for you to put your communication plan together before 2018? You know, because your feedback is important to the entire Breakthrough Radio team, our intention is to bring you guests each week that expand your knowledge and inspire your actions to grow your business. And to accomplish that, it benefits us both to hear what you like, what you didn't like, which topics you're enjoying, which ones you want to learn more about. And you can always email us those requests at thebreakthroughspecialist at gmail.com. I want to thank you for visiting and checking out additional episodes on Breakthrough Radio at www.thebreakthroughradio.com. This is Michelle Price here. We're coming to you from the third coast of Houston, Texas, where we help you deliver the best business minds each Monday live. You know, we love working with you, whether you're down the street or around the world, to tell your dynamic story and to attract your ideal customers. We will talk with you next Monday. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.